Welcome to another episode of Mahali Aati Makalme, the dedicated podcast of the Climate and Environment Initiative at RSIL. Today we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Samuel Naseeb. Dr. Samuel is a Assistant Professor of Economics at LUMS. He's an applied economist with an active research portfolio in the areas of environmental and natural resource economics and political economy. Dr. Naseem received his PhD in Environmental and Natural Resource Economics and Policy from the University of California, Riverside. He studies citizens' behavior in response to deteriorating environment quality in developing countries and states' capacity in developing countries and how it relates to public good provision. Thank you for being with us today. So today we'll be talking about the dual threats of air pollution and climate change in Pakistan. And as South Asia's second fastest urbanizing country, um, Pakistan also ranked as the second most polluted country in the world in 2020. So before we go any further, Dr. Naseem, can you give us an idea of what we mean when we talk about air pollution and climate change and what the relationship between the two is? Um, thank you, Maha. So that's a good question because I feel in, in our context, a lot of people conflate uh, air pollution with climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, though there's a lot of overlap between air pollution and climate change uh, when it comes to sources or when it comes to the kinds of policies that you need to address the two issues. But fundamentally, it helps to kind of see them as two distinct problems. Mm -hmm. um, so air pollution in many ways is more localized and localized in the sense that, you know, emissions, PM 2.5, which is the most egregious pollutant, for example, mm -hmm you know, PM 2.5 emissions in Lahore would either affect residents of Lahore or surrounding areas, but doesn't necessarily affect people far away, right? But climate change is caused by greenhouse gas emissions. Now, greenhouse gas emissions themselves, you know, gases like carbon dioxide, methane, etc. Now, these gases themselves are not harmful when you breathe them, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, they go and accumulate in the atmosphere. And when they do, that leads to what we call, uh, you know, it raises temperatures it, and, and emissions across the globe affect each other. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's why we call it a global phenomenon, right? Because emissions in the U.S. will predominantly harm people in South Asia, for example. Right? So that's why it, it's many ways it's, it's important to kind of distinguish between climate change and air pollution because the kind of response that's required or the kind of policy actions that are required are fundamentally quite different. On mm -hmm. climate change, you need global action. You need countries to get together uh, and, and devise, a, 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 you know, commit to, well, on the mitigation side, which is reducing greenhouse gas emissions, they have to commit to reducing their emissions. Uh, but also they have to think about uh, channeling resources and creating those funds where more vulnerable countries, which also tend to be much poorer uh, compared to the biggest emitters, how they're going to adapt or uh, uh, become more resilient in response to, to uh, the changing climate. Air pollution, on the other hand, like I said, is, is a local problem. And mm. so in Pakistan, for example, we need to, we need, local policies to kind of think about how do we how do we address this right so i can come back to that later but 
you know, in terms of thinking through, thinking about climate change and air pollution, I think it's fundamentally very important to, to kind of think about these as two distinct issues. Mm -hmm. There is overlap for sure. And a lot of policies that you can use or leverage to address air pollution could also help you kind of mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. But we shouldn't, we sh you know, when we, we're trying to dissect the problem and thinking about policy responses, we need to, we need to kind of keep that, you know, or we need to, uh, we need to be very particular about the fact that uh, the policy response for these two issues is going to be fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. And then when you do conflate the two of issues of air pollution and climate change, then individuals are more likely to feel like um, with climate change, for example, mitigation isn't the most important issue for Pakistan, it's adaptation. So if you conflate the two, then individuals believe that air pollution, they're not really contributing to it. But as you said, if it's a localized problem, then they definitely are. And we need to think about how we can reduce air pollution on an individual level. That's another really great point. And I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, looking at the kind of conversations we've been having in Pakistan the past few years, uh, again, people are conflating the two. Um, but uh, just as an example, a few years ago, they started with these uh, urban forests. I mm -hmm. don't know if you recall that uh, um, policy, but that, you know, they had this this sort of um, uh, civic engagement thing in the and it was done by the Punjab government and they were they were creating these urban forests in, in cities like Lahore, Islamabad, etc. Mm -hmm. But the kind of conversations that were happening around that and that too by people who were uh, leading these initiatives was that create these forests are going to control air pollution and this is going okay. to be like a solution to our air pollution problem, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, the fact is the at both climate change and 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 anything about climate change and air pollution, the the scale of these issues is just so large. Mm -hmm. And these kind of these kind of ad hoc steps. I mean, these are planting forests is a, is a noble action. You know, it's a, I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't be planting urban forests. But you can't sell that as a strategy to, to clean our air because fundamentally the only way you're going to clean our air is when you're going to get polluters to stop polluting, mm -hmm. right? Now that is where the real challenge lies, identifying who the polluters are, figuring out what are the incentives that lead them to pollute, then how do we kind of disincentivize them to pollute, right? And so, or how do we, how do we um, you know, leverage price-based policies, like should we tax their pollution or not? In, in the US, they're using, not the US, but in US and other countries, they're now experimenting with market-based techniques, like mm -hmm. pollution permits, for example, right? So those tend to be, and I'll come back to that later too, in economic jargon, what we call cost-effective. Uh, and our existing policies, air, the policies that we have on paper to address air pollution aren't necessarily cost-effective. I'll just park that uh, for now and I'll, I'll address that in a bit. Um, but the forests, you know, you can't sell them as a initiative or a strategy to reduce pollution. Yeah. And the other thing, I think the mistake that they made was they made it seem as if, yeah, a lot of people talk about, you know, how we're not responsible for climate change and then like, you know, people shouldn't tell us what to do or what not to do. Mm -hmm. The fact is, yes, we're not the, the, you know, amongst the biggest emitters, but we're really vulnerable to effects, right? We're, and it's just the consequence of geography. Mm -hmm. And you can't do anything about that. 
So the fact is global temperatures are going to go up. That target that we or the, the world set itself, 1.5 degrees till 2050 or something, I, yeah. you know, a lot of people know that that's not going to be achievable. Yeah. Very, very difficult given the status quo. Uh, and given that, you, you know, you have to face reality, which is that, you know, these effects you're going, you know, we're already experiencing these effects and they're going to perhaps snowball going forward. And we need to learn how to adapt. Right, and that's what you just uh, mentioned uh, uh, earlier. And planting forests is a way to adapt. It's it's, it's a way to adapt because it gives shade. Mm -hmm. So we're, think about the workers who work outside. When it's super hot, their productivity goes down, etc. You know, it's it's they stop working. They need shade. They need some place to sit down and and regain their their strength. Uh, and there's evidence, there's a lot from Indonesia, and this is very good experimental evidence demonstrating that farmers or outside workers, when they have access to trees, they're able to rest, they're able to regain their energy, and then are more productive than workers and farmers who don't have access to these things, right? And similarly, planting trees also, I'm not sure what the numbers are, but, uh, you know, uh, people claim or urban planners claim that planting these forests do decrease temperatures in that particular area by a few degrees. Uh, but that's how I see urban forests. I see that as an urban strategy to, to, um, to make, you know, again, it goes back to this idea of creating smarter cities. And having urban forests is important, but let's not sell that as a solution to our air pollution problems, what we've been doing. What that does is that it, it, it takes us away from actually, away from the actual polluters, the actual source of the problem. And that's where we need to kind of uh, divert our, our uh, uh, energy. And I think part of the reason why there's such popular solutions in Pakistan especially is it's easier to implement right like it's easier for us to talk about planting trees than it is to talk about implementing the policies we have and making sure that the people who pollute stop polluting because that's quite hard for you to get support for especially with that um, balance between economic growth and um, the environment that we have to manage in Pakistan yeah um, totally um, you know it's Policies are always hard, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's not as if Pakistan doesn't have uh, uh, poor policies, uh, especially when it comes to the environment. If you if you look at uh, if you look at the history of environmental legislation, it's actually pretty rich. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, on paper, we do have solid rules and regulations. Uh, we've got um, in, you know, these standards that we've set. Um, we've got environment, you know, the, the law has a provision for environmental protection councils, which sit and have, you know, they have, they have, they're the oversight body of the environmental protection departments, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, so in, in some ways we do have um, laws and rules and regulations around this, but having that on paper is a fundamentally very different thing than actually seeing implementation of the same policies mm -hmm. or rules and regulations. And that has to do with the fact that these rules and regulations are basically operating within a very weak institutional structure, right? Uh, our environmental protection departments, which are mandated by law to enforce environmental standards, don't have 
um, uh, um, you know, A, they really have very few resources. Mm-hmm. Um, I did this uh, little piece on like the history of like air pollution or air quality management in Pakistan, and I demonstrated it's only like less than a percent of the provincial budget that goes to the Environmental mm-hmm. Protection Department, right? And that's what they have to use. It's the Environmental Protection Department's response. So, you know, after the 18th Amendment, environment is is now gone into the provincial domain, right? So, the, so the, you know, you, they on a budget less than a percent, and they're responsible for the environmental management of the entire province. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to do that with the kind of resources that they have. So because of that, they have really weak enforcement and monitoring mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So once you have standards, you've basically mandated a legal limit in law, right? It's kind of like speed limits, like on the motorway when you say like, you know, if your um, speed limit is 120 kilometers an hour, fact is that, you know, that's the law, but, you know, you can easily break that if you want. And if you don't have the motorway police, then, you know, you can, people can drive at whatever speeds they want. And it's the same thing with the standards is that, you know, if you look at our PM 2.5, well, I think the Punjab government doesn't even have that. PM 2.5, which is the most egregious pollutant, for example, they don't have an industrial standard for that. What they do have is an ambient air quality standard for PM 2.5. But I mean, you know, that's basically saying that the limit is 35 micrograms per meter cube per day. But we also have an annual standard, which is, I think, close to 10 or 15 micrograms per meter cube. Mm -hmm. So the idea, so what these standards suggest is that on an annual average has to be less than 15 or 10 micrograms per cube, but there's a provision that on certain days you can pollute. So that's why the daily average is higher, right? So that's why it's 35 micrograms per meter cube. But then if on many days you're, you know, you're close to 35, then on a lot of other days, you have to make sure you're well below that so that the annual average is between 10 and 15. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, if you look at air quality readings from Lahore, you know, I mean, it's very hard to find a day when air pollution has been less than 50 micrograms per meter cube, right? Mm-hmm. It's at atrocious levels throughout the year, perennial. It's not just a winter phenomenon, it's a summer thing to you know, throughout the year, our air quality, PM 2.5 levels in this in the city and many other cities in the in the country are at hazardous levels, right? And so, so as I was saying, these guys have that standard, but they just really don't have the capacity to monitor and enforce that. And that's a tragedy of like policymaking, not just, you know, when it comes to the environment, but for a lot of other kind of uh, departments too. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned about the extent of the air pollution problem in Pakistan, but um, what what are the major causes of air pollution in Pakistan? Is it industry? Is it individuals? Mm. Um, right. Is there enough data to tell? Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, and the simple answer is we actually don't have enough data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to get a good sense of emissions, scientists conduct what we call source apportionment studies. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so you collect samples. I mean, there are different ways of, of, of doing source apportionment, uh, but one of the most popular ways is you collect samples and then, and this is the job of the Environmental Protection Department, by the way. So if you look at the US, 
you know, environmental protection is really decentralized. So even at the city levels or county levels, you have, you know, environmental protection departments and they go and like collect air samples and they're, you know, sort of, you know, they ex put them under the microscope and then they get a, you know, good sense of, you know, what the pollutants are and what the sources are, right? Uh, but for us, our environmental protection department hasn't conducted a single source apportionment study. So the EPD itself has no idea what our sources are and what are they contributing. Uh, so the the most popular study that's quoted in power, everybody quotes that study, is this 2018 FAO study. And yeah. FAO is an arm of the of the UN. Basically, what they did wasn't wasn't source apportionment. They actually looked at remote sensing data. Remote sensing is fundamentally very different from, from source apportionment. And they took that data. And so we've got sort of crude numbers around what are the sources of pollution in Punjab. Uh, and what this study shows is that um, vehicular emissions, so vehicles are the number one source of PM 2.5. That's mm -hmm. about 43%, I believe. Uh, after that is industries, and I'm blanking out on the number, but then... I, I think, think 25%. 25, yeah. Then it's followed by, I think, power, and then finally agriculture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, then, obviously, we don't have enough uh, data, so I guess our first mitigation strategy to really combat air pollution would be to collect more data. Um, but other than that, um, could you give us an idea of um, what measures there are that individuals and then institutions can take to reduce air pollution? Hmm. Um, look, again, the, the, the one could argue that you can incentivize behavioral change in individuals and that might uh, contribute to improving air quality. But the fact is that, again, the, the scale of the problem is just so large that, you know, individual actions are perhaps not going to, not perhaps, they're just not going to work. So you do need, like, a, a stronger response than that. Um, so individuals who pollute, it's a reaction to incentives, right? Mm -hmm. um, the reason people pollute, by the way, is, you know, in economics, we, this is a, you know, it's, it's what we call a standard common pool resource problem. Yeah. The air is a common is a common pool resource. Um, in you know, it's uh, when if you if you think of industries, when industries pollute, air pollution or the pollution that comes out of those industries is is you can think of that as that's waste, but that waste goes into the air. And so the air is providing a service. It becomes a repository of that waste. Mm -hmm. But these guys are not paying for that, right? So there's, a, there's, there's value to having air, which is it's acting as the repository for the waste. And so firms are not, are not they're, they're, gener you know, they're making output and they're, they're making a profit off, uh, off mm -hmm. of what they're producing. They're paying for all the other inputs and services but this service that the air is providing is something that they're not paying for, right? If they were to pay for it, then they might think about reducing their, you know, you know, changing the habits or the way they produce their their uh, products, or um, you know, installing technologies, etc. But the fact is, they're not. The bottom line is, they're not paying for that service that 
air is providing and so they over pollute. So that's your standard common pool resource problem, right? Now to address that, we need to think about, you know, so here's, here's a common pool resource problem and there's, you know, several ways of, of um, seeing how you can fix this. Um, you're a lawyer, so you probably know that whole you know, common pool resource problem arises because of a lack of property rights. Mm -hmm. So, the, you know, can we think about ways where we can define property rights? Uh, you know, we do that very easily with natural resources like land or maybe perhaps yeah. even water with forests. But, you know, there's no reason why we can't do that with air. And once we do that, then we have a valuable right that can be distributed, that can be exchanged and bought and sold, etc. Mm -hmm. So that those who really need to pollute are then actually made to pay for the right to uh, discharge their pollutants in this uh, um, in the air. Uh, another way of uh, targeting this is through charges. Yeah. Right. So uh, you have, you know, for every unit of pollution that these firms produce. Uh, you, uh, you know, this this rests in what we call the polluter pays principle. Mm -hmm. That if you pollute, then you got to compensate everyone else for doing that. So for every unit of pollution, you 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 pay a tax or a charge, uh, which is then reinvested in society, right? Uh, and so you know, if the tax is high enough, then the the polluters are incentivized to cut down on their emissions. Uh, so these are the kind of sort of general, uh, you know, so these are well, these are the two sort of broad market-based responses. Mm -hmm. The more traditional response to combat combating air pollution is what we call a command and control approach. And that's what our, our government currently uh, uh, uses. A command and control approach is what I said earlier, is basically you, you, know, you uh, mandate some sort of a um, figure in law. Uh, some uh, threshold in law and then basically just say that you know you can't go beyond this this threshold you can't pollute beyond this threshold and then you use the the strong arm of the state or state machinery to enforce the the mandates or the standards that you've set right so that's what we do now the environmental protection department has a bunch of standards and it's uh, um, you know and it's mandated by law to then ensure that it's, uh, you know, that, that polluters or whoever are like meeting those standards. But like I said, it's just they don't have the resources or capacity to like really enforce that. Yeah. So then it's a governance problem where we need to be investing more in the departments, making sure that they have the human resources to actually carry out their... Um... Right. One of them is, a, is, is even if, okay, I'm glad you bring this up. Even if, let's say, the Environmental Protection Department had the resources, mm -hmm. you know, so um, you're you're able to staff it well and like it has, you know, 100% monitoring and enforcement capacity. Even then, a standards approach, a command and control approach, is is very costly. And the reason it's costly is because different polluters have different costs of reducing pollution. Mm -hmm. uh, the word we use is abatement. So different polluters have different abatement costs. But standards are all uniform. Mm -hmm. It's not that you have a different standard for different polluters. Everyone faces the same, same standards. But there's some people for whom it's far more costly to reduce emissions than others, right? So there might be firms that are newer, have newer technologies, 
you know, for them, it might be really, really cheap to to reduce their their pollution or their their emissions. But they might be these old firms with old technologies, old habits, and um, uh, um, managerial skills or whatever. Perhaps these, you know, perhaps it's really costly for these firms to to reduce their their emissions. So you know, so so if you add up all these costs, because everyone faces a uniform standard, you know, this balloons. Uh, this really uh, inflates the costs that society bears for like enforcing the standards. That's why economists are so into the market-based approach, mm-hmm. is because once you have a, a charge, let's say, you know, if you start charging every polluter for what their emissions are, then those polluters are going to weigh the costs of those um, what what it costs. See, if they, if, they, if they reduce their emission, they have to incur costs, right? Because they have to clean up those emissions. But once they do that, they don't have to pay that additional tax because they're reducing emissions. So the emissions are going, go, they're going down, they're decreasing. So they're paying lower taxes as a result or charges as a result. So they weigh those taxes against their, their abatement costs. And every polluter is going to do that. And so the, 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 eventually the, the abatement costs, marginal abatement costs become equal across firms. Uh, and, you know, you can demonstrate when that happens. I won't go into more technical details, but when marginal abatement costs are equal across polluters or sources, then the total abatement costs for society are, are the lowest. So in, in practice, of course, you might not be able to ensure that marginal costs are equalized across sources, but this is far more cost effective than a standards approach where everyone's facing a uniform standard. And then one of the other reasons that it's preferred, I think, by firms is because it leaves them that choice of what to do. Yeah. So like you said, yeah. whether to pay the, um, the right. amount or whether to use clean technology right, right. versus command, of course, which puts them at the, you have to use the exact same structure as everybody else. Right. No, great, great point. Um, you know, Command and control policies are often much more nuanced than this too, right? They also, they have mandates on, on emissions, standards on emissions, but they also often have like mandates on technologies. So yeah. then that constrains firms because then they have to basically like adopt technologies that the government's mandating. Mm-hmm. So it takes away the flexibility to do things the way they want to, right? So charges gives them that flexibility mm-hmm. because hey you're you're targeting so as the regulator you're basically focusing on pollution not necessarily the habits of the firms or the polluters mm-hmm. so you're setting the charge and then you're letting these agents the firms or individuals respond to that charge and they have that flexibility to do uh, you know they can adopt whatever technology they want to they can change their own practices they can perhaps like you know buy better inputs uh, maybe make their workers more adept at uh, the production process or the stuff that they do at the firms or at the factories, etc. So, you know, there's a lot of inbuilt incentives for the firms to do things independently versus, like you said, under a standards approach where you really get straightjacketed by the, by the law. Mm-hmm. So is this um, approach then used in a lot of other countries? Because like you said, it's not implemented in Pakistan, but do we have examples of other developing countries that are successfully using it? On air pollution? Well, ah, uh, India, by the way. So mm-hmm. India has really started experimenting uh, with new ways of addressing its air PM 2.5 problem or its air pollution problem. Um, 
you know, Indian cities too rank among some of the most polluted cities in the world. Uh, but in the state of Gujarat, they're experimenting with the first PM 2.5 tradable permits uh, system. Okay. So the tradable permit system is, is sort of similar to the charge system that I told you about. But mm -hmm. instead of charging firms, what happens is you allocate the right to emit to firms. These are called permits. So you allocate these permits to firms and then the firms trade these permits on a, on a, on, in, a in a market. Mm -hmm. um, so if there are enough firms, then the, the, this market becomes uh, pretty uh, competitive. Uh, and what happens is permits flow from those who need it most to those who don't really need them, right? And mm -hmm. so the, the price that's set eventually in the market is equivalent to that hypothetical tax or charge we would have set. Uh, so, um, so the state of Gujarat, uh, it's experimenting with the first PM 2.5 uh, permit market in the world. So that's a that's a you know I think it's a it's a huge step. A lot of the developed countries have actually done exceptionally well in improving their air quality. Uh, so they perhaps don't really necessarily need these kind of strategies anymore. Um, for example. The U.S. after the 60s, you know, in the 50s and 60s, the U.S. used to have really terrible air pollution too. Uh, but it was really in the 70s after the form, after the Clean Air Act, they really invested in, uh, you know, sort of air quality institutions and like democratizing the process. There's a bunch of steps that they took in the last 50 years that now in the U.S., U.S. citizens are breathing the cleanest air that they oh. ever have since readings, since mm -hmm. the U.S. started monitoring air quality and water quality. So they're breathing the cleanest air and drinking the cleanest water since this data became available, right? So, um, but what they are, what the U.S. and Europe, they're leveraging taxes or permit systems, uh, permit markets for greenhouse gas emissions. Right. Because, you know, a country like the U.S. hasn't done well. When, so it has done well when it comes to localized pollution, like PM 2.5 or sulfur dioxide. And so for, you know, again, things that, that uh, deteriorate air quality. But because of, and it's done that because it had a solid policy. A solid policy, mm -hmm. then it refined and it um, polished over 50 years and it was well implemented. And you can see the results. But what the U.S. never had was a solid policy on greenhouse gas emissions, yeah. right? Uh, so you can see that it's one of the biggest emitters, and uh, and it's really kind of struggling to to uh, reduce its carbon footprint. Uh, but you know, the they're they're open to the idea. Of, uh, some of the states, by the way, uh, I think California and there's some other states, they are on an exchange where they can. Um, trade permits, uh, carbon permits. And so they, they're using the, the permit system to uh, reduce emissions, but that's just, it's not across the country, it just involves a few states. And I think some provinces in Canada, uh, but the European Union also has its own uh, permit trading scheme, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So uh, when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, you can see there's far more action in terms of leveraging market-based strategies in, in um, you know, the high-income countries. Um, which is something that we can we can um, use as an example and perhaps try to emulate too. Mm -hmm. I definitely think it would be interesting um, to see how that would apply to Pakistan, and hopefully there is more research in the future 
on this in Pakistan. Um, but we talked a, a lot about um, how to reduce um, air pollution. Um, but now let's move a little to the individuals and how air pollution really affects people in Pakistan. Um, and do people, uh, because your research is related to this, do people realize the effect of air pollution on their health or their livelihoods, for example? Yeah. Um, well, on really polluted days, I'm sure people do uh, yeah. uh, experience the effects, right? So especially in the winter months when um, um, air quality levels are really hazardous, um, See, I don't have precise data here. And again, you know, one should look into this. What are the, you know, how one should look at hosp hospitalization uh, rates mm -hmm. and see how many people check in for lung-related problems yeah. like asthma or bronchitis, etc. But we have, you know, enough evidence now. I mean, this is uh, PM 2.5, again, the most egregious pollutant. It's just... Let me just tell you what it is. It's PM two point PM stands for particulate matter. Two point five is just the size of this this particle. Now these these could be small oily substances or solid substances, but these are these are like they're smaller than a tenth of a diameter of a strand of hair. They're really mm -hmm. tiny tiny particles, and so when you inhale them, they easily enter your bloodstream. And once they do that, I mean, they can, you know, they, it's, 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 it in, increases the uh, risk of all kinds of morbidities and, and mortality. Uh, so in terms of life expectancy, given our existing levels of PM 2.5, an average Lohori would lose approximately six years of their life, wow. right? This is six years of not being with family and losing out on the chance of being in this in this in this world, uh, and that's just because of poor air quality, right? But in terms of morbidities, though, it's you know not just lung diseases and a high risk of cancer, etc., for the highly sensitive and vulnerable. But now we know the 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 sort of that PM two point five also causes severe cognitive disabilities. So if you have young kids and they're exposed to high levels of PM 2.5, that really stunts their brain growth. Uh, um, and, e, you know, and, a lot, and on polluted days, for example, students perform really poorly on math and English tests compared to uh, cleaner days. Uh, so it's not just affecting your health, but it's also leading to um, you know, poor school outcomes and academic outcomes. And a lot of the, these things add up, right? This is the short-term cost, but if you like fail on your exam, that has long-term repercussions. Mm -hmm. And a person who's, who has stunted brain growth might not even get that opportunity. So, you know, it's a, the, the, the effects, the consequences are incredibly, incredibly severe. Yeah, I, I didn't know that it affects um, cognitive ability. And that, that is very scary. And I think if we look at it on a large scale then with um, professionals, working professionals, then it would hamper your productivity. It would reduce your ability to get work done. Um, so that's actually quite interesting. There's an economic and social cost to it as well as the individual mm -hmm. health costs. Yeah, also for workers, well, there's evidence that shows that uh, on polluted days, labor productivity falls. Yeah. 
so you have less productive uh, workers, which means you have less output and you know uh, lower incomes, etc. So you know these are there's a range, a wide variety of costs associated with air pollution, mm-hmm. and a lot of these kind of you know sort of they they um, snowball, and um, you know can can be quite disastrous. Mm-hmm. And so, given the effects, um, what can individuals do to protect themselves? Right. So this is we're coming back into the adaptation domain. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I wish I was a more optimistic person. Sadly, I'm not. So I don't think that in Punjab or Lahore, we'll be able to improve our air quality in, in, in the long run, at least. Um, well, in the short run, but I don't think we're going to be doing it in the long term either. It really requires you know, us to put in the required resources to build that monitoring enforcement capacity, mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, given how weak our institutional setting here is, you know, I just don't see it happening anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Now, we can't just give up, right? So if, if we're not, we, if we won't be able to clean our air, at least we can take steps to, to avoid pollution. And that's what, like, a lot of my research these days is on, is on uh, pollution avoidance. So one is, of course, particular filtering masks, right? Yeah. So in our uh, research, we're demonstrating that people have um, willingness to pay for these uh, for this for this good. Um, it's not, and I'm, I'm talking about an average lorry. So we went and did field surveys. We have field experiment happening, and we demonstrated people have considerable willingness to pay for this mask. Okay. Um, and um, you know, on average, the price might be lower than the retail price, but with a little bit of subsidy you'll be able to get the average person to actually procure the mask. Um, so A, people should be investing in these PM 2.5 masks and wearing them. The other is time use. Uh, time use is when you, um, you know, limit your uh, exposure to outside air. So instead of going to work, on a regular, if it's polluted, you might decide to actually like take the day off if it's like really polluted. Uh, or spend more time indoors versus outdoors, mm-hmm. or just limit act outdoor activities for a short while until like you feel like air pollution has improved. Um, so there's that. In order to engage in better time use, again, you need access to good data. The, the Environmental Protection Department in Lahore is terrible at providing data. It uploads a lot of the data on its website, and then even then, it's not visible on the homepage. You have to like go on like sort of different pages on the website to kind yeah. of get a sense of where that data is. I mean, an average person can't do that, right? An average lawyer can't navigate that website to begin with. Uh, B, uh, the uh, often uh, they, you know, they'll, they, they just don't report data. Um, and so people are very skeptical about the authenticity of the, the data that they're sharing, right? Um, then you have... You know, so this has opened the space for private providers. So you have okay. those IQ Air, Air Visual app. If you open that up, you'll see a lot of like individuals have bought these low-cost PM 2.5 monitors and they've installed them in their offices or at their homes and they're providing kind of real-time data on air quality. Uh, but again, that's accessible through the... So they often, you know, A, the thing is, they just report PM 2.5. Sometimes you want to know 
you know, you need to know data on other pollutants like ozone. Um, so, you know, for that, you need much more sophisticated devices. The uh, EPD has them, but people are, like I said, there's a lack of trust in government data, right? So people don't often trust that kind of data that the EPT provides. The uh, American consulate in Nahor, in fact, all consulates and the embassy, so they're two consulates, well, I think they have, th the U.S. has three consulates in Lahore. Uh, Karachi and Peshawar, and then it has its embassy in Islamabad. So the U.S. government has this initiative to like um, gather air quality data across the world, and it's doing that through its embassies and consulates. Uh, so the consulates and embassy in Pakistan have these sophisticated air now monitors installed. Perhaps that's the most sophisticated monitor in in, in Lahore right now, uh, and that relays real time information on PM two point five. Uh, on the Air Visual app. They also tweet about that. You can also find that on their website. But ideally, what should happen is that an average citizen should either get these readings to an SMS message on their phone, mm -hmm. or our newscasters, you know how news reports weather every day, they should be reporting air quality data along with that. Mm -hmm. So these are kind of the, some of the broader adaptation kind of strategies that we can, we, you know, I think or the key adaptation strategies that I think we should be focusing on. And because one of the major issues of adaptation is that it's never equal. Um, it's, yeah. um, of course, if yeah. you're in a higher income household, yeah. you're more likely to have an air purifier, you're more likely to have access exactly. to masks. Exactly. Um, so then beyond the individual, I think it's the institution that needs to step in to help lower income yeah. um, people from being affected by air pollution yeah no exposure is definitely a equity problem like you've said um those who are well off can actually engage in that sort of time use that we we're talking about right mm -hmm. taking the day off or not going outside they can then invest in air purifiers air purifiers are a very expensive device not everyone can afford them um and like i said people do have a willingness to pay the you know the, this is evidence that we've generated through our research. Uh, they have willingness to pay for air particular uh, these particular filtering masks, these PM two point five masks or N ninety five masks mm -hmm. I would call them. Uh, but those masks are the average citizen is still not able to afford it um, because the retail price is just slightly higher than their willingness to pay for it. So this is where like you know we need to think you know equities often markets and can't address issues of equity. Markets are very good at addressing issues of efficiency, mm -hmm. but equity is, is hard. And that's where you always need intervention, right? So that's why I think you have to think about what are the kind of subsidies that we can provide, you know, those at the bottom quintile, those, you know, uh, at the median, anyone below the median quintile to get a sense of their willingness to pay for these things. And if they can't, how do we subsidize them to at least buy masks? Um, and how do we get them to engage in better time use, receive this information? Because, you know, you and I can just like download the air visual app and get a good sense of what the air pollution, these guys can't. Mm -hmm. So how do we provide them this information without like them having to pay for it, et cetera? So you know, that's, those are the areas where we're, you know, there's, there's a lot of inequity, which needs to be, you're right, addressed through an institutional response. Mm -hmm. And I think one other issue that we'll see in the future is mass migration from the most yeah. polluted cities to other cities. Like you already see people choosing to move their families from Lahore to Islamabad yeah. for the cleaner air. Yeah. So um, 
the government needs to recognize that this is likely to happen in the future. It's already happening. Yeah. And figure out how to manage it or how to make sure that the least well-off aren't yeah. disadvantaged by it. Yeah. In terms of migration, you're right, there's always a trade-off. We're witnessing a lot of climate migration already. Yeah. But that's climate change induced, right? Where mm -hmm. it's just becoming impossible to survive in, uh, in certain areas, right? Where there's temperatures have just, you know, gone through the roof or like, you know, where you just don't have access to water, where you have extended periods of drought, et cetera. Um, so you're witnessing climate migration, but, on, but there's also evidence of air pollution migration, like you said. Um, first witnessed in China, where a lot of the industrial towns became super, super polluted. And then you saw a lot of people moving out because their productivity had fallen, they were getting sick. Um, and so, like you said, it seems we do have anecdotal evidence in Pakistan that people are moving from more polluted cities to others. But then the trade-off is, is also sources of income, right? So it might be polluted in Lahore, but then if you decide to move to Islamabad, you're not really sure if you actually have, you'll, you know, you'll be able to make that same sort of income or even find a job. So people make those, are always weighing these kind of benefits and costs, right, for making those decisions. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, uh, but it is a problem that if, you know, it's, you're, if there is migration, the question we need to ask ourselves is, are our cities able to withstand that impact? Yeah. Uh, even in a polluted city like Lahore, we do see a lot of like rural mi uh, migration, mm -hmm. right? So people are for, you know, moving to, to Lahore in search of better opportunities because you know, it's a big urban center. They feel it has like more job opportunities, et cetera. But then just look at the way we've developed Lahore. It's contributing to further air pollution. Yeah. So instead of consolidating the city, perhaps thinking about, you know, a smarter design, investing in public transportation, you know, we're essentially investing in sprawl. And so once the city kind of sprawls out, you get more cars and more roads and there's, you know, hence more fuel being burned. Uh, and as a result, you not only get more greenhouse gas emissions, but given how poor, you know, Vehicular emissions, as we know, is the number one cause of PM 2.5. The PM 2.5 levels go up as well, etc. Right? So it's kind of, you know, we're kind of stuck in this kind of weird loop where, you know, there's migration happening into the city, but we're also not thinking about investing enough in a, in a smarter design, right? So uh, I know it's a big challenge. Mm -hmm. And I mean, hopefully we'll see more research on this in the future, more people working on it, and we'll get some solutions that can be implemented, that will be implemented. But there's a political economy angle to this too, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's not that all policymakers are kind of evil or kind of, you know, sort of dumb and they don't get these things. That's not the case. I think they, they too, to some extent, understand these things. But, you know, often... A housing society builders are very powerful people and really well connected. So the sprawl that you witnessed is them exerting power to some extent, right? So curtailing that power uh, and the influence of real estate moguls or real estate institutions is 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 a very difficult thing in 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 our current political milieu, right? So, um, but I mean. It's nothing wrong in having aspirations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, a, a, a smarter 
greener Lahore is what we all should be aspiring to and one with really good public transportation. And I think you have to keep that optimism with you, otherwise you just can't survive. Yeah, no, I, you know, again, I think there's a lot of heterogeneity on this. Like I said, I'm very pessimistic. I think people should be adapting, but you're right. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe, you know, we'll, we'll end up with a, with a clean, smarter lore in a few years. <laughs> but thank you so much for this discussion. Um, it was very interesting and I learned a lot of things. Um, and thank you to our audience for tuning in and please tune in for our next episode as well.